I should like to uh, draw your attention this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. Perhaps one of the most significant, important passages in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage which is before us this morning, a discriminating passage, a passage that divides and so we pray that by the Spirit of God we would grasp and understand your word, that we might ensure that we truly are those who bear fruit, good trees with good fruit. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would teach us, that he would give us ears to hear, minds and hearts to believe and to receive this word. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Surely these verses are among the most solemn verses that you will ever find 
In the Bible, they are on a par with such statements by Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. Or, uh, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so as we come to this passage this morning, I want to draw your attention to uh, what Jesus says here at the end of this great Sermon on the Mount, which of course began back in chapter 5, chapter 6, and now through into chapter 7. These are among the most profound words that Jesus ever said, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We ought to pay attention to them, we ought to know them, we ought to listen to them, we ought to uh, instruct ourselves in the very teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has really given to each of us is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. What a disciple looks like. If you go into any of our schools uh, in the country and you look at a classroom, you see students and you see a teacher. You would hardly say that the students are like their teacher and vice versa. You would not recognize that they are like their teacher if they are at all. But here, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus, Jesus is going to say to us, you must be like this. Otherwise, you are not my disciple. You are not a follower of me. And Jesus, at the same time, as he so powerfully depicts who a disciple and what a disciple is, at the same time, he tells us that there are those who are not disciples. And he says you can know those who are not disciples of Jesus. In fact, right here, if you look at verse 15, he gives this very powerful, poignant warning to beware of false prophets. That every true disciple must be on the lookout for false prophets or false teachers. And then, you'll notice in verses 21 through 23, here are people who say that they know Jesus. Here are people who say that they've done many things for Jesus. They've performed miraculous signs. They, they have made great profession and fanfare of knowing Jesus. Yet Jesus says, I don't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or you workers of iniquity. It's very important that we grasp what Jesus is saying. That Jesus is saying, on the one hand, there are true disciples. And on the other hand, there are false disciples. Those who claim to be disciples, but in reality are not disciples at all. And this is incumbent upon us then to pay attention to Jesus. To hear what Jesus says. For many can be under an illusion. And many can be under a delusion as to whether they are really disciples of Jesus. Jesus denies that these people know Him. I don't know you, He says. Leave me. Depart from me. Be gone from me. I never knew you. And those who are His disciples, if you look at verse 24, they are those who hear the words of Jesus. They are wise, He says. Not only hear the words, but the wise do what Jesus says. And isn't this the very discriminating thing that Jesus points out? That there are others, in verse 26, the foolish people, the foolish man, who hears but does not do what Jesus says. 
That is the discriminating line that divides the true Christian from the false Christian. There are many who hear the word. Many who take in the word, but there are very few who actually do what Jesus says. This is a powerful statement then about, about what it means to be a Christian or not a Christian. For me, I can never study enough as to discern for myself, am I truly a Christian or not? What are the signs? What is it that tells me that I truly belong to Christ, that I really believe? And what are the signs that show me that I might not be a Christian? It's very obvious from what Jesus says here, who a Christian or a disciple is and who is not. It's very significant if you'll notice in verse 13 and verse 14 that Jesus says there are two ways. Not three ways, or four ways, or many ways. There are just two ways, he says, or two gates. In fact, one of those gates leads to destruction, to death, to judgment, to wrath. The other gate leads to life, to everlasting life. And so Jesus puts forth the life of a believer or the life of a disciple as being represented by these two ways or these two gates. He means for you to ask the question of yourself, which way am I in? Which gate have I entered through? If you want to enter into life, Jesus says in verse 13, you must enter by the narrow gate. Narrow. Not wide, but narrow. But then he says in verse 14, as far as this narrow gate is concerned, the way is hard. The way is difficult, he says. And even more important, he says, there are just a few that are on that road. So Jesus defines as he looks at the ways that are before men and women and boys and girls. He says there are just these two ways and two gates. If you are wanting to enter life, you have to take the narrow gate where the way is very hard. And there are just a handful of people, he says, that are on that way. On the other hand, verse 13, he says there's a wide gate. Wide. Many can enter it. Many do enter it. Many, he says, are on that way because that way is easy. That way is easy. You often hear sometimes as Christians to our shame that we complain of how difficult the Christian life is. Guess what Jesus told us up front? The way is hard. Jesus even put it like this, that unless you are prepared to deny your mother and father and pick up your cross and come follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That very powerful close relationship that we have between parents and children. Jesus says, if you put that above me, you're not my disciple. You're not my disciple. That leads Jesus to unfold, doesn't it? Those kind of statements like, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will it profit? Nothing. You're lost. You're on the road, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. And so, as we come to this passage, we want to hear what Jesus says. We want to know what Jesus says. What Jesus is really giving us in verse 13 and 14... When he talks about the narrow way and the narrow gate and the hard way and the easy way and the wide gate, 
What He's really giving to us is His Gospel. What He's really saying to us, this is my Gospel, and my Gospel divides people. You're either in, in with me or you're not. You're outside of me. You either believe the Gospel or you don't believe the Gospel. You're either changed by my life, my teaching, my Gospel, or you're not. You're either in the Kingdom or you're not in the Kingdom. It's very simple, isn't it? Jesus is very clear. There's nothing here to muddy the waters about how to know whether you're a Christian or not. There's nothing here that leads to uncertainty when you listen to what Jesus says. Jesus is very plain, very straightforward, and very clear. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that His Gospel always divides. You often hear about the great desire to unify, to be one, to unite. We can never unite the believer with the unbeliever. Paul says that. What partnership does a believer have with an unbeliever? Zero. Not some, not five percent. No percent. Nothing. No connection between believer and unbeliever because in the believer Christ is in them, but in the unbeliever Christ is not. In reality, it is Jesus who divides. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Mother-in-law against daughter and so on. The gospel of Jesus, Jesus himself, is the dividing factor. And this is what we, we find here. So when you put it all down, you can say there are believers what is a believer like? He hears or she hears and does what Jesus says. Then there are unbelievers. What are they like? They just hear, but don't do. They don't do. It's pretty simple when you think about it. Christian is defined as someone who hears Jesus, the words of Jesus, and then does what Jesus says. I have to continually ask myself the question from Holy Scripture, do I do what Jesus says? Oh, I hear what Jesus says. In fact, it's apparent everybody hears with the ear what Jesus says. But very few actually do what Jesus says. This is the discriminating feature, isn't it, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those believe and those who don't believe. And the distinction actually comes down to doing the word. Not just hearing the word, but doing what Jesus says. These verses, 13 through 29, the end of chapter 7, are really the summing up statements by Jesus of everything that He began in chapter 5. Went through chapter 6 and into chapter 7, and now He's come to the, the end of it. What He really is doing is He is forcing us, directing us at the end of chapter 7, to make a decision to implement what Jesus actually says. To hear what He says. To not be on this wide road that leads to, to destruction. To not be the foolish man who built his house upon the sand, that when a little pressure came, rain, wind, it fell and the ruin of that house was great. No, Jesus says, be a wise person. Build your house on the sand, I mean on the rock. Be firm so that when the storms assault you, you stand rock solid. In my gospel, in the truth, in me, 
It's what Jesus says. Now you know there's that very famous verse, if you look at chapter 7, verse 12, which really ends, the, or sums up chapter 5, chapter 6, and through to chapter 7, verse 12. It brings to the whole conclusion, the Sermon on the Mount up to that point, but in particular what Jesus began to say in chapter 7, verse 1, about judging other people. He says, do not judge others, right? Judge not, verse, seven, verse 1 of chapter 7, that you be not judged. Because if you judge others with the judgment you judge them, you will in turn be judged, Jesus says. So the golden rule of verse 12, which is so powerful, so whatever you wish or want that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is what you find in the Old Testament. This is the law of God. This is the teaching of the prophets. It's very simple, isn't it, verse 12? The golden rule. If you want others to treat you well, you ought to treat them well. However you want them to treat you is how you should treat them or do to them. That is a very convicting verse, by the way. That's not just a simple verse, well, I'll do to you as you do to me, or vice versa. No, this is the fulfilling of the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the teaching of the law and the prophets, Jesus says. Whatever you wish others do to you, do also to them. I must confess, it's when you examine your life and look at your life, you see that you're actually far off that, perhaps. And that you do not treat others as they ought to be treated. Verse 12 is really the fulfilling of God's law. The doing of God's law. Not the hearing, but the actual fulfilling, the actual doing of it. And it's really couched, isn't it, in terms of your relationship with other people, right? Whatever you wish that others would do to you. Other people. It's about your relationships with others, Jesus is saying. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus has been showing to his disciples what the true nature and character of being a disciple is. If you went to Jesus today and you said to him, tell me what a disciple is like, Jesus would give you the Sermon on the Mount. Show me a disciple, Lord. He would show you what he has said right here in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. To put it another way, because the way is hard and the gate is narrow, Jesus lays conditions down. Conditions that are described in terms of the kind of fruit that your life produces. That if that fruit is not there, on what basis then do you claim to be a Christian? If there's no fruit, how can you say you're a Christian is what Jesus is saying. You shall know them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruit. That's the evidence of their life, perhaps. You will recognize them. What Jesus is saying is, let me show you what my kingdom is like and what those who are in my kingdom are like. Let me demonstrate their character. It is not the abandoning of the Old Testament. It is not the abandonment of the law of God, nor the abandonment of the prophet. It is, as Jesus himself says back in chapter 5, and I think you should turn there if you go to chapter 5, and look at verse 17. It's not the abandonment of the law and the prophets. In fact, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I've come to keep the law. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then Jesus shockingly, in verse 20 of chapter 5, he tells his disciples, he tells them, I tell you, verse 20, chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what kind of standard did the scribes and the Pharisees have as far as righteousness, their righteousness concerned? It was way up here. It was a high standard. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the Jewish leadership, their righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness, my disciples' righteousness, Jesus says, must be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Otherwise... You're outside. You're not in my kingdom. And then, if that's not enough, at the end of the chapter, in verse 48, he says, Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. Be perfect, he says. You know, some people have translated that, be mature, because that's the, the, the kind of the word, what the word means. That's not what he's saying, be mature, as your heavenly Father is mature. No, he's saying be exactly like God. Be exactly like your Father who is in heaven. Demonstrate that you are actually a child of God. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So when we look at the standards of the kingdom, surely the standards of the kingdom are exceedingly high, aren't they? Jesus unfolds those standards one after the other, for instance, in chapter 5. Let me show you from chapter 5. He goes through a whole list of characteristics or behaviors that belong to a disciple. So notice in verse 21 of chapter 5, he talks about being angry, verses 21 and 22. Verse 27, he talks about lust. Verse 31, divorce. Verse 33, oath-taking. Verse 38, retaliation or vengeance. Verse 43, loving your enemies. All that long list, which by the way, the more I thought about it, that's, that's something that's particular generally to all of us. We all face issues with anger. We all face issues with lust, with divorce, marriage, breakdown. We all face issues with oath-taking and retaliation. You know, oath-taking, your word is not your word, or your word is your word. Or being vengeful, retaliating, or not loving even our enemies. These are things that are very relevant to every Christian, to every believer. And he teaches his disciples that he is giving them the true meaning of the law of God when he talks about, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you're angry, it's exactly the same as murder. You don't have to commit adultery physically, outwardly there. You can commit it in your mind and in your heart, Jesus says. And he says you're exactly you're guilty as if you did the outward act itself. No different. So Jesus is, is not giving the traditional interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes. No, he's giving true biblical interpretation of God's law as it applies to those who would be his disciples, who must be like this if they would call themselves Christians. And he compares the teaching of the Pharisees, right? You have heard that it was said by those of old, 
But I say unto you, he compares it with his teaching and gives this true, beautiful interpretation of God's law. And that verse in verse 21 of chapter 5 is so relevant, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, that sounds right. But then Jesus just brings it down to your own heart, doesn't he? When he talks about that if you are angry in your heart, you might as well have killed them on the outside. Why is that important? All those statements Jesus makes, you've heard it said, but I say, why is that important? Because you see, the Pharisees and the scribes are fixated on an external appearance, on an outward behavior. To be seen by others and to be rewarded by others or praised by others, it's really the self-righteous attitude that the Pharisees have. They want to be seen. They want to be praised. They want to be rewarded. It's an external observance. They even add their own ideas and traditions, making void the Word of God or the commandments of God for the commandments of men. But what Jesus is saying is that the real issue for all of us is in our hearts. In our hearts. Every day of our lives, the real issue is your heart and my heart. Jesus gives, doesn't he, the Beatitudes as he opens chapter 5, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, and on and on he goes, right? Those beautiful blessings, which are simply a description of what a Christian is like, what a disciple is like. Jesus is not saying, this is how you become a disciple. Jesus is saying, this is a disciple. This is what characterizes a believer, a disciple. And verses 13 through 16 in chapter 5, where he talks about you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Those two statements about being salt and light really describe your relationship with the world. If the Beatitudes describe your relationship to God, being salt and light describes your relationship to the world, to others, to the unbelieving world. And that relationship, Jesus says, is always couched within the framework of my law, the law of God. Can't get away from God's law. And Jesus shows his relationship, his own relationship to the law in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now you see, once you understand that from chapter 5, only then can you make progress through into chapter 6. Because if we're going to get to chapter 7, we've got to take this route because this is how Jesus goes. And so we begin to learn in chapter 6 that we actually, the disciple of Jesus, has a relationship with the Heavenly Father, with God, our Heavenly Father. In fact, we live our lives in the light of God. God is our Father. So notice, for example, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 24, we have our spiritual life particularly outlined. What is your giving like? Verses 2 through 4. What is your prayer life like? Verses 5 through 13. Jesus, remember, pray this way. Gives that beautiful model of how we ought to pray. He talks about, about forgiving one another. Listen, if you're not willing to forgive someone else, nor will your Father in heaven forgive you. Verses 13, uh, sorry, verses 14 and 15. He talks about your fasting. Those particular occasions in your life where you need to draw near to God, right? Through fasting, verses 16 through 18. And he talks about your possessions. How practical that is, right? 
your money, your attitude to money, and so on, in verses 19 through 24. Those are all things that are about your spiritual life particularly. Not one of us can get away from that. You see, Jesus has told us, this is what my disciples are like. They, they need to readjust their attitudes about how they regard just statements that you find you shall not murder. It's really the attitude towards others that's at the issue. You don't, want, you don't actually kill them, but you've killed them by being angry with them. So it's really the attitude of your heart that Jesus unfolds as he talks about his disciples. And then that just comes into chapter 6 in your spiritual life. And then the remaining verses 25 through 34 of chapter 6, he deals with practical matters, not just spiritual, but practical matters for the Christian. Things like your food and your clothing. And then he says this, he says, why are you anxious? Why are you worried about your food and your clothing, where your next meal is coming from? Why are you fixated on these things which are causing you all kinds of worries? And so he turns to these secondary matters, just plain simple things like what you drink and what you eat. But the most important thing he says is verse 33, right, of chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness, his standards, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, food, clothing, will be added unto you. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. You see, if you want to live your life fully, totally, completely, for the glory of God, then Jesus says these are the things that matter. These are the things that should occupy you. In fact, Jesus is saying, get your heart right, always. Fix your inside, your attitudes within you. The Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leadership, they are so taken up, aren't they, with legalism. About the external action. That's the spiritual life. Jesus says, no. The external action is always a reflection of what really you are like within. What are the Pharisees like? They're self-righteous. They're self-righteous. And so they do not love God, they love themselves. They love to stand on the street corners, Jesus says, and, and stand there to be seen by others, to be praised by others. That's a self-righteousness that Jesus says. No, when you pray, you go into your closet when nobody sees you. You don't tell people that you pray or that you fast. You just do it in secret. And your Father, who sees that in secret, will reward you. Christianity today, I dare say evangelical Christianity today, is so filled with this parade of self. I mean, it's derived it from the world, but there it is. We must be like this. We must do these things and so on and so forth. And unless you're doing that, you're not really spiritual. That's just Pharisaism. That's just legalism. No, isn't, didn't Jesus say that I came to set men free? Free from sin. Free from its bondage. Free from these man-made traditions. Free, truly, spiritually alive and free. That's Jesus. That's Matthew 5, 6 and 7 in a nutshell. And these relationships... That Jesus is deriving our connection to the world, our connection to God, our connection to others. Just carries on into chapter 7. 
where he begins by saying, do not judge, judge not that you be not judged, judge yourself first. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Do you know how you get around this problem that we all seem to have about judging others? The way you get around that is to be a discerning Christian. In other words, if you're going to take this, the, the speck out of somebody else's eye, you make sure you've taken the plank out of your own eye first before you start judging. It's okay to judge others as long as you've cleared the plank from your own life, from your own heart. And then he says, verses 7 through 11, that we are to live life in the presence of God. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and God will answer you. We go to our Father because we know He's a good Father. He's not going to give us a stone. Instead of a fish, He gives good gifts to His children. You see, with all of that teaching behind him, which must have been amazing to hear, right? Because that's what it says at the end. The crowds were just astonished at his teaching because he taught them with authority. At the end of all of that teaching of Jesus, Jesus brings us to a precipice, to the edge of the cliff. Jesus brings us to a point where now I want to know from you, are you really my disciple? Verses 15 through 27. What is it that distinguishes a true believer, a true disciple, a true Christian from a false one? Or to put it this way, can I actually distinguish that myself? Surely we are often told, must not judge others. You know how people say to you, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? Or don't to judge me? Of course, Jesus says it's okay to judge as long as you've judged yourself first. Right? That's verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. But you know, the interesting thing about this passage is that you often hear, well, Jesus doesn't discriminate. Oh, that's wrong. Jesus very much discriminates between the true and the false, doesn't he? I mean, in this passage, he discriminates between sheep and wolves. He discriminates like that because he wishes us to be absolutely certain as to whether I really am a follower. I really am a disciple. So what Jesus does by distinguishing or dividing people into groups is to show who the real are and who the false are. I mean, think about the sower and the seed, right? Matthew 13. There's such a distinction by Jesus, right? There is seed that falls on the path. There's seed that falls on rocky ground. There's seed that falls in the thorns. And then there's the seed that falls in the good soil. The thing that joins all of those together is that they all hear the word. Those who are represented by the path, by the rocky ground, by the thorns, they all hear the word. But it's only the seed that falls on the good soil that actually does the word, bears forth fruit. Some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. So there's no question Jesus discriminates when he talks about people. In fact, in verse 15, what does he say here of chapter 7? Beware of false prophets. Beware. Not tolerate them. Not put up with them. Beware. Watch out for them. What is the opposite, by the way, of a false prophet? The true prophet. So Jesus discriminates between the true prophet and the false prophet. Now look at these false prophets, right? For instance, in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. The first thing you should see about them is they are deceptive. That's number one. They are deceptive. Well, how do you know they're deceptive? Because they come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like a sheep. 
That's what Jesus says. What does it mean to look like a sheep or be in sheep's clothing? They're easygoing. They're good to know. Placid. Ordinary. They look, behave like a sheep does. You'll think they're a sheep, Jesus says. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They are deceptive. That's the first thing. The second thing is they're dangerous. Because look what Jesus says, verse 15, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves, Jesus says. That's what they truly are. So not only deceptive and now dangerous, but Jesus then makes this statement in verse 16 that they are discernible. You can know them, he says. Because look what he says, verse 16. You will recognize them by what? Their fruits. You will know them, he says. You will see them. You will recognize them. Now the question is, well, what are their fruits? I mean, if I'm going to recognize a false prophet or a false teacher, how do I recognize them? Jesus says you recognize them by their fruits. Okay, so what are their fruits? Well, look what he says. He talks about their false, it's false doctrine, it's false teaching, it's false ideas because they are false prophets. They communicate. False prophets. Now some suggest, and I think this is probably true as well, that the fruit is actually their life on display. The life they lead. Now that may be. I think there's truth to that. But Jesus uses this picture, doesn't he, of sheep's clothing or sheep versus wolves, ravenous wolves, and he compares them. He says, when you look at the false prophet, you never for one moment imagine that they are a ravenous wolf. You don't think that. They take you in because they look like sheep, he says. So there's a danger associated with the false prophet. That's why Jesus says, beware of the false prophet, because you could get taken in by them. There's a subtlety to them, just like the serpent in the garden with Eve. Subtle, undercurrent. Eve had no idea who she was talking to or what the dangers were. But perhaps the easiest way, dear congregation, if you've never thought about this, to discern a false teacher or a false prophet. It's really quite simple. There's no narrow gate in their teaching. There's no narrow gate in their teaching. There's no hard way in their teaching. Nothing. No, there's many on the road. There are many ways to God. And so on. There's no narrow gate, no hard way that leads to life. In other words, sin is downplayed, isn't it? Or it's conveyed this way. Sin is just a mistake. Sin is just a mistake. No, sin is not a mistake. Sin is outright rank rebellion against God. It's lawlessness. It's iniquity against God. It's deliberate. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the false prophet or the false teacher is always a comforting preacher. You feel comfortable under his preaching. You never squirm in your seat. You're never made to feel, I'm guilty, or perhaps I better re-examine my life. never happens under a false teacher. You feel good under a false prophet. You always feel good. He builds you up, you say. You, I'm motivated, I'm encouraged, and out I go, and everything is great. I feel good about myself. That's the false prophet. 
You see, the false prophet will never tell you what God says and what God wants you to hear. The false prophet will always tell you what he wants you to hear from himself. There are many false prophets today. Many false teachers today. It abounds everywhere. It's in the church. Everywhere. On every hand. But the true prophet... If you were to look at the true prophet versus the false prophet, you might say of the true prophet, well, he seems a little narrow. He seems a little formal. And you might be like people of old who take him out and stone him to death. Or you might put him in prison. Or you might crucify him. You might do that to the true prophet. The sad thing about all this is that the Old Testament prophets experienced exactly the same thing from God's people. Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8. God says, my people love to have it so. How sad that is. This is where we find ourselves today. God's people disturbed. God's people not knowing God's word. God's people unsure. Or, to be sure, we might know many things. Church history, theology. We might know all of those things. I really am not interested in those things at the end of the day. What I am interested in is Christ. Do I know Him? Do I know the Lord Christ? That's all that matters, right? When you get to the end, there's no, going to be no exam uh, about your systematic theology or about your historical theology or your biblical theology. Nothing! But Jesus is just going to say, I know you. You're my sheep. In. I don't know you. You're not my sheep. Out. Shocking, right? But that's what it is. Now false teaching is usually bereft of doctrinal stuff. It's all about your power. The power within you. It's all about your emotions being stirred up. Instead of being God-focused or God-centered, it's all man-focused, right? Man-centered. Jesus says, those are the fruits. You'll see them. You'll recognize them. You'll observe them if you know my truth. In fact, Jesus says, doesn't he, verse 16 and verse 20, you will recognize them by those fruits. You'll see them. You know, Jesus is such a wonderful teacher, isn't he? I mean, he's the master illustrator, isn't he? Just from, from things around about him. I mean, you look at verse 16. Here are the differences, right, between true fruit and false fruit. In verse 16, Jesus wants to know, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Well, it's a rhetorical question. I mean, obviously the answer is, of course not. Right? It's not going to happen. Or are figs gathered from thistles? Never. This is never going to happen. There's just no blending. Right? You're either one or the other. You're either a, a grape and a grape only or a thorn and a thorn only. No, no combination. No producing one from the other. And it's not just the differences that Jesus is on about, but really the impossibility of bearing fruit contrary to your nature. A grape or a vine produces grapes, never thorns. It's utterly impossible. It'll never happen. They can do whatever work they want in the laboratory. It will never, a vine will never produce 
thorns, it will produce grapes. Because that's the nature of it. You see what Jesus is saying, just like the fig tree and the thorns and the grapes and the thistles have their nature, so too the false teacher, the false prophet has his nature, so too does the unbeliever have his nature or her nature, so too does my disciple have his nature, her nature. And they're not the same. They're very different, Jesus says. In verse 17, you'll notice healthy trees produce good fruit. Oh, well, of course. And this is positively, right? Healthy trees produce good fruit. Diseased trees produce bad fruit. But on the negative side, you look at verse 18, what does Jesus say? A healthy tree cannot, cannot bear bad fruit. And a diseased tree obviously cannot bear good fruit. Notice the impossibility of it, right? Cannot. Utterly impossible. So what's the connection? Jesus says, listen, the wolf can never be a sheep. And the sheep can never be a wolf. Because those two natures are completely different. It's not, they are like sheep. No, they cannot be sheep. That's what it is. It's not they can just be like sheep. No, no, they are not sheep. And they can never be sheep. Because the, a wolf cannot change nature. You see how Jesus describes the wolves, the false prophets? He says they are ravenous. The word is rapacious. I mean, have you ever seen wolves, I suppose, on these wildlife programs? You get a whole bunch of them and there's a kill, there's a deer that's been killed and they're coming to eat it. No wolf says, right, to the other wolf, now look, why don't you go first? Have you ever seen a wolf stand back and say, no, please, please, uh, help yourself. Well, no, the younger children should go first, please. Or the ladies among us, let them go for it. No, you've never seen it. Guess what? You'll never see it. Because that would be contrary to their nature. Right? They are hungry. Killers. Ripping their prey to shreds. This is the word that's used for swindlers. Jesus says in his Olivet discourse, his sermon, right? Towards the end. He says that false prophets will mislead many. Same word. Same word. Jesus says, same chapter, Matthew 24, 24, they, they will even show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Or, as Mark says, to lead astray the elect. False teachers, false prophets lead astray, if possible, even the elect of God. So what do you do with a bad tree, right? Verse 19. Look at verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that it will never ever grow and produce anything ever again. It is removed. It is removed. You cut it down, you burn it in the fire. Just another way of saying you get rid of false teaching and false prophets. That's what we always have to do in the church. We always have to be discriminating about teaching. We always have to be guarding against false ideas and all of this stuff. You destroy that. You cut it out. You cut it at the root. Because it will infect people and destroy lives. And you notice how Jesus moves from the wolf and the bad tree to actual people, right? Bad people, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the false prophet. That's the false teacher. 
Their claim to fame, look at verse 22, right? Is that on the day of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Does that sound familiar to some kind of teaching today? Right, there's so many groups, Christians out there, who are claiming these kinds of things. Prophecy in Christ's name, casting out demons in Christ's name, and doing mighty works in His name. It's out there. It's in evangelical Christianity, that kind of stuff. Jesus says, I never knew you. Because that's the external stuff. But not their hearts. Not their hearts. And so on the day of judgment, they're going to point out to Jesus their works. What are you going to point out to Jesus on the day of judgment? Not your works. Simply that you're a trophy of grace. Jesus loved me and died for me, and he's my righteousness. I have none of my own. I have no works to offer my own. I have nothing of myself to give to you, God, except Jesus your son. And I'm only accepted by the Father because of the Son. And if I'm in the Son, I know you. But if you're not in the Son, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, of course, Jesus knows everyone. He knows unbelievers and believers alike. But when he says, I never knew you, he means we're not in relationship with each other. We never were. You did all these things in my name, but not because you loved me. Not because you know me. Because you thought you'd get some reward from your works. From what you have done. Jesus says, verse 23, I don't know you. You're not my disciples. You're workers of lawlessness. Guess what? You don't get to enter heaven. In other words, you're on another road. Jesus is saying, you're on the road to destruction. You're on the road that's wide, he says. Mr. Spurgeon says you can pay or make all the homage you want, Lord, Lord, but unless you do the will of my Father who is in heaven, you will never, ever enter the kingdom. I mean, that's shocking stuff, right? That's not just Jesus loves me and is a wonderful example. No, it's much, it's much deeper than that, isn't it? The false prophet, the false disciple, the false Christian has an easy Christianity. An easy Christianity. Goes to church, seems a nice person, says the right things. Mr. Spurgeon even says that an orthodox creed cannot save you. It only condemns you. But inwardly these are no love for Christ. No saving work in their hearts. No desire to love God's people, be with God's people. No hunger for righteousness. Nothing. They only hear the word. And Jesus says they're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And guess what? The storm came. The ruin was great of the house. Now the, when the end does come, they will have nothing. Nothing. Not even their works. It will just condemn them. It's the Pharisees who are the wolves in Jesus' day. It's the Pharisees who are the false prophets, like their fathers in the Old Testament. It's the Pharisees who are the bad trees. And today, it is those who are in the church, but do not belong to Christ. Who mislead people, who think they serve God, their ruin 
Jesus says, will be like the collapse of a house built on sand. Gone. Utter destruction. Okay. So what about you? What about you? Which tree are you? On what road are you on? What gate have you gone through? That's the question, right? Or to put it another way, since Jesus is very particular, what's in your heart this morning? You get angry. You know what that really is? Murder. You really want to kill someone. Or you lust in your heart. Jesus says, it's adultery. Let's not quibble about it. Let's just say it for what it is, Jesus says. It's adultery. It's immorality. You want to... You want everybody to, to love and please you, but you're not willing to forgive. Jesus says, if you're not willing to forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. No forgiveness. You see, this is all about inside. This is all about what I'm thinking, feeling. I must examine myself honestly in the presence of God, right? Or to put it another way, is God my heavenly Father? Can I really say that? Is Jesus really my Lord? Am I like uh, chapter 5, verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that me? Am I born from above? Born of the Spirit? Born again? Born anew? Do I have a new nature? Do I belong to Christ? Are you on the narrow road? Only a few are on the narrow road, Jesus says, because the way is hard. And what we want is an easy Christianity. That's the way to destruction, Jesus says. That's the way to judgment and wrath. So this is a call to all of us, isn't it? This is not a, just a call to some. This is a call to every single one of us. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Are you truly a disciple? Really? Am I truly a disciple of Christ? Which tree am I? What kind of fruit am I producing? Do I love God's people? Can't wait to be with God's people. Want to be with God's people. Want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's too much talking about preachers and, and men and, and ministries out there, but not enough talking about the Savior. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus is not really interested in, in you talking about others. He wants to know, do you love me? Because if you love me, you will hear what I say, and you will do what I say. And that, that is ultimately the issue that divides all of us. What will you have? Or perhaps you're saying, well, no, that's, I can do both, really. No man can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one, love the other. Jesus says, it's just me or the world. Will you have me? what he says. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, above all these things this morning, we desire that there be genuine fruit from our lives. Real fruit. That we would love you and want to please you and be obedient to you. We might think that we are believers and yet we walk the line Sometimes in the world, sometimes out of the world. But loving the world here and there. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Do not love the world 
or the things that are in the world. Because the love of the Father is not in those who love those things. Oh Father, here we are this morning, confronted by the words of your Son. We pray that we might hear what the Lord Jesus says. And that we might know for ourselves, it doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. May we all, each one of us, know that we are on the narrow way. And if we are not sure, then let us fly to Jesus, run to Christ, and cast ourselves upon Him and ask Him to save us, to deliver us, and He will. Also, we thank You for Your Son, our Savior. We thank You for Your Word. Speak to us now, we pray, in this hour, that we might respond, that we might put away that which is false and deal with that which is wrong, and seek the truth only. Seek Christ, who is the truth. Draw us nearer to Jesus, we pray. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the kingdom of heaven. Thank you that we belong to it if we know Christ. So teach us these things, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.